has come to your little town, Sheriff. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, a show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I'm joined by horror filmmaker and graphic designer, my friend, Carly Boone. How are you doing today? Hi, Austin. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No problem at all. In fact, we've been trying to do this for like a couple weeks or maybe a (laughs) couple months, but our schedules was not aligning. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy few months for me, for sure. But I'm really glad we got to finally get it all together and talk about werewolves. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes. And in case you didn't read the episode description or the episode title or whatever, we are in fact talking about werewolves. I'm over the moon for today's topic basically howling for joy that I finally get to talk about werewolves yes me too (laughs) we're gonna have so so many puns I'm gonna do my best I feel like those are the (laughs) only two puns I have because I wrote those down literally five minutes before I set up (laughs) and I'm like I hope I come up with more but we'll see I think we'll we'll be able to sprinkle them in Carly why did you pick werewolves So uh, a big reason why I wanted to talk about werewolves is that they've been a little bit on my mind in the past uh, six months, I would say. I've been working on a horror short since October of last year that uh, very much has to do with werewolves. So it kind of reignited my love for this monster that has been in our hearts and minds since you know, almost the the very early decades of film. And I feel like as a woman specifically, I have actually weirdly always found myself very attracted to wolves and werewolves. I think something about just the the wild, feral nature of these creatures has always been incredibly appealing to me. And uh, I think I always just kind of like wanted to be a werewolf when I was a kid. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, now that I'm, you know, a, an older, you know, adult woman, I feel like the werewolf archetype has really transformed in my mind. And I I also love how ripe the werewolf archetype is for metaphor, for exploring, you know, internal transformations as well as external transformations. And I also just think that they are a monster that doesn't always have uh, the best representation in the history of horror cinema. And I feel like they deserve more love. Oh, I 100% agree with a lot of what you said, but especially on uh, they need more love because they always, I feel like werewolves always get paired with vampires and vampires are like more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they get more of the spotlight. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like werewolves are the more like marginalized of the monsters. But I also think that, you know, I was thinking a lot about uh, vampires and werewolves and the different representations that they've had throughout the just the history of horror and the different ways that the monsters have been designed over time. And I feel like they both 
have a lot of variety in the way that they can look. And I think that vampires are just, yeah, like a little bit more explored. Whereas I think werewolves are, yeah, they just like lurk in the shadows a little bit more. Yeah. And I wonder if the element of being like a beast has something to do with it, that primal animalistic traits found within the werewolf inherently whereas a vampire you could choose to have that or you could go the Bella Lugosi very classy dignified yeah vampires are a little bit more of an elegant monster whereas werewolves are just like yeah like we were saying like primal feral um they're just like all of your deepest most animalistic instincts coming out and I I that's why I just love them. They're just so fucking cool. <laughs> no, I, I am team werewolf all the way. I've never seen Twilight, but I know I'm team Jacob. <laughs> yes. Yep. I was I was always team Jacob. I'm sorry, Robert Pattinson, but like, oh my God. I just, I, I don't know what it was. Even the, the werewolves in Twilight, you know, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> as far as like, are they even werewolves? You know, they don't change up for the full moon and they're full, like they're full wolves. Um, so I yeah. think that's an entirely other con- uh, conversation <laughs> as far as like, <laughs> are they really werewolves? I don't know, but I was definitely a Team Jacob fan during my, uh, the peak of my Twilight obsession, which arguably I think I'm still in. Have you always like, been a horror fan or were you just fascinated with werewolves when you were younger? Yeah I mean I definitely was always a horror fan. Um, I feel like werewolves my I think my interest in werewolves more specifically came from just my love of wolves. I don't know why but I was obsessed with wolves as a kid and I I remember I went to Yellowstone when I was really young and I had these wolf stuffed animals that my dog like destroyed when I came home and I was absolutely devastated and was always just like they were my favorite animal you know whatever but then I have also always been a horror fan since I was very young Uh, I grew up on like Chucky the Grudge the Ring lots of like kind of paranormal like supernatural horror and then as I got a little bit older especially when I started college I dived really deep into like 80s horror creature features and monster movies are always those have always been my favorite subgenre of horror and werewolves like I said I just think they're one of those monsters that I don't feel like have always had the best light placed on them and I think that is just kind of there's just so many like different passions of mine that kind of like merge together (laughs) and uh the werewolf is the epitome of like so many things that I'm I'm interested in I'm interested in like the method of horror that is um you know, horror is so visceral and it really allows you to explore so many of your internal fears. And I love like the metaphorical opportunities for horror and specifically monsters and horror. So I just, you know, I just kind of landed on werewolves and I've just been into them ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on all of that. I love monster movies. I love creature features. I wasn't always a horror kid because everything scared me when I was a kid, (laughs) but I did have a fascination with monsters. 
So if I can make like kind of a guess, I feel like wolves were your gateway animal to horror. I kind if that of makes sense. Like they were, yeah. No, honestly. <laughs> For me, it was dinosaurs. Yes, I I loved dinosaurs too. I know you're a Jurassic Park fan, and I'm also <sighs> huge, huge Jurassic Park fan. <laughs> I know I say all the time how much I love Jurassic Park, but then like I don't ever think of that people like realize. So when you you just saying that, I'm like people notice. It's not yeah. like I it's not like I don't say it every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, yes, like well well deserved. I would say Jurassic Park also for me was yeah very much a gateway horror um because they're like a monster but I've also always really been into like evolutionary history and like archaeology mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff and dinosaurs were totally like up my alley too but anyways we're doing something a little interesting today with the podcast and we are going across the entire history of werewolves in film yeah we're doing a full werewolf retrospective today so Strap in, get ready. <laughs> You're going to want to sink your teeth into this one, guys. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> I just came up with it. I have a whole list, actually, of like werewolf related like taglines and stuff. I should I should pull it up. <laughs> Do it. I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to unleash myself kind of. Um, is that one? That's kind of more like a dog. Um, no, I'll I like it. that. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> so for everyone listening, Carly is an academic mastermind because she gave me this whole document with all this werewolf research and I am just like oh we are going hard today oh yeah we are going hard we're gonna go so hard we're gonna go all the way back to 1913 with the werewolf do you want to talk a little bit about the first one? Yes. So this is something that I had actually never heard of until I started doing research for this podcast. And just reading the little bit that I did about the werewolf from 1913 was incredibly sad, actually. This film follows a Navajo woman who becomes a witch after believing her husband abandoned her. And she teaches her daughter the ability to transform into a wolf to seek vengeance. I love the idea of the werewolf power being imposed upon someone, like gifted, you could almost say. So Mm -hmm. this really, really fascinated me. And uh, it was also, they used a real wolf in the transformation sequence, as well as camera dissolves, which we see a ton in like early werewolf films using the kind of dissolve effect to achieve that transformation. But sadly, in 1924, there was a fire at Universal that made it, made this film lost forever. It was lost in the fire and there is no way to watch it now. And when I read that, I was just like, (sighs) just stabbed in the stomach. I'm like, that is so upsetting to hear. I hate hearing about films that are lost (laughs) and we can never enjoy them. And it's like, it makes you want to watch them more first off. Exactly. (laughs) But like when a film is lost in that way, it's just, that's history that's lost. It is. It's art that's lost. It's the same thing as a few years back when the Notre Dame Cathedral was on fire. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the fact that the just the very first werewolf film was focused on a female werewolf too, specifically. Um, I would have I would have really loved to have seen it. But 
alas, that is not the reality we live in. So we have to keep pushing forward. And thankfully there were so many other great werewolf movies <laughs> that came out <laughs> in the decades afterwards. Great and, you know, some not so great, but we'll get into that. <laughs> that was a great transition. I'm just gonna- Thank you give you that um maybe you should start your own <laughs> podcast if you ever have the time no uh, like seriously that was good i was like oh you just improv <laughs> that yourself i here oh, i yeah. now i'm taking notes <laughs> i did my homework austin oh i know i know <laughs> so in 1935 we're jumping jumping quite ahead werewolf of london comes out so we arrive at 1935 with werewolf of london and there's a scientist or a botanist, uh, his name is Wilfred Glendon, and he's bitten by a strange creature. Um, he, you know, he's with all his other scientist buddies and they find this, they're researching this mysterious flower that is basically like an antidote for werewolves. So this is the first sign that we get of, uh, we're getting a little bit more lore with this one, with the uh, werewolf lore, with this flower that's wolfsbane. And that kind of solidifies itself for decades to come as one of, you know, the cures for being a werewolf, kind of a la, you know, like silver bullets or uh, anything like that, garlic for vampires. <laughs> so yeah, this first wolf was uh, part of the universal monster universe, and it was really revolutionary as far as special effects. We had Jack Pierce, who was doing the special effects. And once again, this is still super, super early on. So this transformation is essentially achieved through um, a series of photos of the actor, that is then kind of dissolved together uh, to make it look like his body is changing. So still really, really early on in the practical special effects department. And in my opinion, not my favorite werewolf look, but uh, <laughs> I can respect it for what it did for werewolves to come, I could say. <laughs> yeah, it definitely laid a lot of the groundwork for the werewolf uh, canon, yes. I guess. Especially, yeah, for like the lore, like changing under the full moon. A lot of that kind of stuff was really, yeah, set and solidified with this first film from Universal. Were you able to find this picture? Because when I went on my own werewolf research expedition quest in 2020, I, I found I wasn't able to find like to watch this one. I've seen chunks of it, but I do not think I've seen. I don't even know if the full version is out there. That, that a, could be why I didn't find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be another one of those films that's lost or it could just be hard to find because it's, you know, from almost 100 years ago. Maybe right. if you dig into like some ar archives or something, you might be able to find it. But Especially I since it's universal. Exactly. Yeah. I would, I would hope Universal would uh, have some, it's got to be in like, it's got to be somewhere, you know? <laughs> exactly. They're, they're keeping their properties under lock and key for sure. So it's, they must have a copy of it somewhere. I'm hoping. I'm kind of like looking at your document and I'm noticing a very glaring omission. Oh yes. What would that be? The Wolfman. Yes, you're so right. <laughs> so we got to talk about the Wolfman, Austin. Do you want to take that away? All right. Um, 
well, there's no note, so I'm going off the top of my head. <laughs> um, was this just like an honest mistake or what I think this was an honest mistake, okay. but I was um I did talk down in the document, there's a little bit about the wolf man because American werewolf in London is very much kind of like a reimagining of the Wolfman. Spoiler alert, guys, we are going to talk <laughs> about American Werewolf in London. Oh, we're going to talk about that one. But yeah, um, the Wolfman was 1941, classic, classic universal monster up there with Frankenstein and Dracula and the Invisible Man. Lon Chaney Jr. plays the Wolfman. Claude Rains plays his dad. And he also plays the Invisible Man, but not in this movie. This is kind of the first time that we are seeing kind of this like ancestral linkage that is also very much a, uh, a part of werewolf lore, like the, the son and father connection, like the the son kind of like takes after the father. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot with werewolves that is very much about like the familial connection. Um, so we kind of start to see that with the wolfman a little bit. And I think we can make a parallel with Werewolf of London and the wolfman to the slasher genre, particularly Black Christmas and Halloween, whereas Black Christmas laid the groundwork, the foundation kind of establish all these tropes mm -hmm. but Halloween does it and everyone credits Halloween because everyone saw Halloween mm -hmm. I think the Wolfman did the same thing with Werewolf of London um I don't want to say it did it better I haven't seen Werewolf of London but it did it in a way that resonated a lot more with audiences yes yeah and I'm, I'm wondering if some of that was because of the the characters and the family relationships in this I think also the special effects um even though they are kind of similar to the ones in Werewolf in London um they definitely are unique in their own way and it's a couple year difference too which I think helped, like a six or seven year difference mm -hmm. which special effects change a lot in in that time period Oh yeah, in the in the 30s, I mean there were constant innovation like probably to a degree that we can't even like wrap our minds around in like the modern era now, especially with like practical effects um because there was so that was all you could do. Exactly, exactly. Although I do think it's really interesting that Werewolf of London I guess, didn't find its audience because it came out after Dracula, Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man. And those are all iconic movies that stood the test of time. For whatever reason, Werewolf of London didn't. But I'm okay that because Universal tried it again and we get The Wolfman. Which and then we is... got The Wolfman again <laughs> and again <laughs> and again. <laughs> and I'm okay with it. I'm, I, I like me The Wolfman. And I do think you can make the case that the Wolfman deserves his own episode too. Yes. Yeah. I would probably agree with that. I mean, it is absolutely like a, it, it's a pivotal, pivotal, I should say pivotal film for uh, the horror genre in general, but yes, specifically for uh, kind of creating that groundwork for the werewolf lore. And it's such a strong character too. I could talk about the Wolfman himself. Like I could talk about the Wolfman for a while. I won't. <laughs> we are going to move on to the 1950s, where horror shifts to B-movie status. 
and it's heavily influenced by science fiction due to World War II, the atomic bomb, Roswell. Oh, that happened in the 50s? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so in the 1950s, we kind of start to see this shift from, uh, yeah, horror kind of starts to take a backseat B-movie status. Um, I kind of have a suspicion that it's because so many people are so terrified of <laughs> what's going it going down in like you know the modern world that I don't know if uh, money just wasn't being poured into horror, but there was definitely a shift to more of a B movie status for that genre, and there's also all of these like science fiction elements that start to get brought in to horror so a lot of these movies and I I actually don't think I've seen any werewolf movies from this time period but they notably start to get a lot schlockier Um, a lot of them are focused on scientists like in werewolf in London or like experiments that are going wrong and we're still seeing these uh this werewolf special effect that's like the cross dissolve and they're still very much the classic almost kind of bear looking wolves Mm -hmm. that Jack Pierce introduced um with America or with uh, American, were- not American werewolf in London, <laughs> just werewolf in London. <laughs> yes, I did want to know if you'd seen any of these films um, from this time period because I'm really curious and if not- they're even worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> not any werewolf films, but I do want to um, touch on your point with the science fiction. I think the werewolf films of this time, from what you researched, it's they seem to just be following the same trends that the rest of horror was going through in the 1950s because I feel like the biggest horror movies of that decade were all science fiction it's like the thing from another world Godzilla the war of the world the fly the blob invasion of the body snatchers yeah like they're pretty much all science I would say like most of those are science fiction first and then horror second and admittedly I will say that's probably a big reason why I kind of haven't seen a lot of films from (laughs) this decade um you know no no hate to science fiction or anything I like science fiction but I like horror with a side of science fiction (laughs) right not science fiction first with a side of horror yeah, I don't want science fiction to be the main course, typically. <laughs> right, and that's what I feel like a lot of these films are. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's other films that I'm not thinking of. I don't know too much about 50s horror, but when I do think of 50s horror, I do think of those science fiction films. Yeah. And honestly, of the ones I mentioned, I feel like Godzilla might be the most horror. And that's clear yeah. science fiction. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is very clear science fiction. Our boy Big G deserves his spot in the horror hall. He does. <laughs> at least at least that first film. He does turn into an action star and then a kid's hero. But we love him. 60s and 70s. So when we start to get into the 60s and 70s, um, kind of like with the 50s, this is kind of when teenagers started to become like the main horror consumers of the time. And so 
I feel like that really changes the horror that is coming out from like the 50s to the 70s because teenagers are starting to, you know, like they are seeking out a different kind of horror film than I think was being made for a while. So they want to see things that are kind of, you know, reflecting the changing world, the socio-political culture of the time. Um, and we're also starting to get like hammer horror is starting to get really big in the 60s. This is once again, another period where I'm not super familiar with a lot of the werewolf films from this time, at least. I would say the 60s and the 70s, it kind of starts to feel like werewolves are becoming a little bit more of like a joke. Like they're not really scary during this time. Uh, they're a lot more family friendly. Like I think, I think of like the monsters or like mm -hmm. Mad Monster Party, where they're like a little bit like cuddlier <laughs> kind of werewolves. And uh, I haven't seen Curse of the Werewolf uh, from 1961, so I was curious if you have seen that or if you can attest to it maybe being scarier than some of the other stuff that was coming out during this time. I've never seen a Hammer horror film. Really? Okay. All I know is Christopher Lee is, it, I hear he's awesome as Dracula. <laughs> and I know I've seen clips, you know, mm -hmm. like I can identify a Hammer horror film, but I know yeah. I have not seen one all the way through. Yeah, they, they have a very, I would say like a pretty distinct look and like vibe to them um I'm totally on the same page though I haven't seen that much hammer horror um I just know that it yeah it has this very specific kind of like gothic style to it and uh when we talk about American Werewolf in London they definitely you know are paying a little bit of homage to that kind of period but I did want to touch on um some special effects innovations that were happening mm -hmm. during this time. So we had uh, The Curse of the Werewolf 1961, which is from Hammer Studios, that had some pretty groundbreaking effects by Les Bowie. And then in 1973, we get Boy Who Cried Werewolf, which is another film that follows like a father and son who are both becoming werewolves, I guess. And uh, <laughs> Uh, it's uh, notably the first werewolf that has an actual wolf snout, um, but we're still, even in 1973, the transformation is being achieved by uh, still photography that is edited with dissolves. So we're getting very much that like classic staring into a mirror with like, like, a, like in a gape mouth as the fur starts to kind of just like <laughs> blur around uh, the lead character until all of a sudden he looks like a big furry <laughs> wolf <Yeah>. bear <laughs> creature. Um, so we're still not like going that crazy with the special effects, um, but they are starting to get a little bit more animal-like, I would say, and a little bit less human right because like the wolf man is pretty much a man that he missed a couple years shaving yeah um. exactly <laughs> <laughs> we're starting to get a little bit more dog-like facial features um and all that kind of stuff as we are moving through the 60s and the 70s into the 1980s which 
as anyone who is a horror buff will know is like the golden age of practical effects and in my opinion the golden age of werewolf films as well but before we before we get there i do want to make a quick point which i think explains or actually it might not explain anything at all this is me pulling something out of my ass right now but um can help explain why werewolves got cuddlier in the 60s and 70s oh and i, I would think love it's, to hear i think it's because the kids who grew up watching the wolfman and frankenstein and dracula and the invisible man those classic universal horror films of the 30s and 40s they're now adults and they're showing their kids those movies and then tv shows like the monsters and i think that kind of that generation growing up it's like well and also Abbott and Costello having all those crossovers in the 40s and 50s I think Mm -hmm. that helped tame down those classic monsters as well because I think the monster mash comes out in the 60s and that also helps and people are making these pop culture like art and songs and tv shows referencing these classics Mm -hmm. that they grew up with and now they're all of a sudden kid friendly. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. That's something I did not think about. But I would imagine that you were probably at least somewhat on target as far as, yeah, like people are starting to introduce these classic monsters to their kids for the first time. And they need to kind of tone them down a little bit <laughs> in order to- And like so. Scooby-Doo comes out in the 60s too, yeah. right? And I know there's a werewolf or a wolfman type creature- Mm-hmm. zoinks so <laughs> i think that's why because it's not just a werewolf that's more cuddly it's also frankenstein and dracula yeah. it's and like, like all the monsters all the universal monsters especially because you get count chocula i think the count in sesame <laughs> street starting to come out as we move into the 80s with the special effects and the makeup especially getting better it's interesting because I feel like from the research you provided for us, the werewolf makeup just explodes on the scene. We go from 73's Boy Who Cried Werewolf, which is better, but it's still like a series of dissolves. Mm-hmm. And then American Werewolf in London in The Howling, which we'll get to, just explodes like everyone's minds with those practical like practical effects. But I do think if you look at the rest of horror in the 70s, not necessarily werewolf films, but like there's some 70s horror films with great makeup and practical effects that I think help led to lead to that werewolf explosion we get. Because like in the 70s, we get The Exorcist. We get Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. We get Alien. And I think practical effects used in those films are applied in like the howling and werewolf in london the yeah. american one absolutely it it seemed like it took it took a while to get the special effects to the point that they kind of needed to be in order to make some of these like very compelling werewolf stories and i feel like it just all kind of the 80s just was a culmination of you know, we finally were in, like, we had innovated enough to get practical effects to the, the place that they needed to be to tell these stories. 
And I think there was also just, you know, like a new culture around horror. It was starting to get really fun again, but also get really, really scary (laughs) and really over the top. And I feel like spectacle was uh, very much the focus of like 80s horror. It was all about making everything big and loud and terrifying and funny and crazy. And it just, it all happened in that specific decade. And that's why we have all of these incredible werewolf films from the 80s. Almost as incredible as our combined transition into the 80s. We're already talking about the 80s. You didn't even (laughs) notice that transition, did you, listener? I'm very (laughs) proud of us right now. (laughs) You said it all. So great. This is the golden age of werewolf movies. And it's not just the um, two titans of American Werewolf in London and The Howling. We also get Wolfin, Teen Wolf, Company of Wolves, Silver Bullet, Beast Within. Yeah, and then we also get some of these films where werewolves are not the the main monster, but they do have a smaller role, um, like in Monster Squad and Fright Night. So even when they aren't the main event, they're kind of lurking in the background of some of these other 80s horror movies as well. The 80s were just great for horror. <laughs> they really and- were. I mean, they're easily my, it's it's my favorite period of horror because um, I... I mean, I'm a huge champion for practical effects, and I feel like pretty much anyone who's into special effects can agree that there was just a time. The 80s were just unlike any other period of time in cinema, and specifically for special effects. Oh, yeah. And it's specifically for horror, too. Although I do got to say, I'm a sucker for the 70s. That's my favorite era for horror. But for werewolves, it's like there's no comparing to the 80s. Not before and definitely not after. Yeah. (laughs) Though there are a lot of gems. I do think there are a lot of gems after, but the 80s were just firing on uh, all cylinders. I want to give some love to the howling real quick. Yes. Because we're about to just... We're about to just bathe American Werewolf in London in all the love and compliments and (laughs) goodwill. But the Howling um, is just as good for me. I think the Howling is a fantastic film. I think it's because Joe Dante is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think American Werewolf in London and the the Howling will always share. To me, they're like sister movies. Like they will always share that title of the iconic 1981 werewolf movie because yeah that year had two iconic werewolf movies yeah which is just like i i can't even wrap my head around what that would have been like to see those right both in theaters when they came out but yeah i i totally agree i think the howling definitely deserves to be recognized as one of the other groundbreaking 80s werewolf flicks of the time. For my personal tastes, I will say I'm a much bigger fan of American Werewolf in London. Uh, I love Dee Wallace and I love the practical effects in The Howling. I think they are, they definitely contend with American Werewolf in London. They're just different. They're just very different. They both have very different tones and uh, they 
are a little hard to compare in that regard, but as far as being great films, they both absolutely stand on their own. I like when the werewolves fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I like that it's a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I have not seen, I saw The Howling like, man, two years ago probably. And I think I need to, I need to rewatch it again for sure because I don't think I spoiler um, alert guys (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I remember as much of it as I would have liked to but I do remember the sexy moments and there's there's quite a few of them if I remember correctly (laughs) yeah because she's like seducing the husband or something I haven't seen it in two years either if I'm being honest but that film has a humor to it that I think American Werewolf in London gets rightfully a lot of credit for being is it horror is it comedy but the howling's really funny too and it Mm -hmm. works with the horror it doesn't diminish the horror because i love the bit where the werewolf hands the the one girl the like she's looking for files and he just hands it to her that and it's funny but it's also like a jump scare so yeah. <laughs> you jump and you laugh. And sometimes that's like scary doesn't have to be you're up at night. Scary can make you laugh too. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like a lot of my reactions when I am scared is to laugh too. Like, uh, I don't know if you just saw X in theaters anytime. Recently, oh, 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 that's yes, another great example of like, There were so many times where I jumped out of my seat at that movie and I was gasping, but I was also like, like laughing because I just, what was happening on screen was like so insane (laughs) that it's like, it's, it's equal parts terrifying and hilarious, which is my favorite kind of horror. (laughs) And oh, I, I can 100% agree with that. And I loved X. I thought like you you just said it great I don't need to repeat what you just said like it was great but let's talk about great greatness great that just greats and you know it's great and now we're on to finally we're on to American Werewolf in London oh I love this movie this is this and Ginger Snaps are very much like two of my favorite all-time horror films so I am just living right now getting to talk about both of these (laughs) American Werewolf in London is like one of those films that makes me want to go make films. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you completely. I I was lucky enough to see this film at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, which if anyone lives in Portland out there, you know that the Hollywood Theater is like this incredible art house cinema um it's been around since like the 30s um it's incredible i got to go see i think it was a 35 millimeter screening of this film with rick baker doing a q a afterwards and i'd never seen this film before i had just seen bits and pieces of the transformation because it's just iconic and I mean, I feel like everyone has been exposed to it at some point or another, but I was in tears at the end of this screening for so many different reasons. First of all, it's got a really tragic ending. It's really devastating to watch. And it makes me laugh every time. It, 
<laughs> it's so sad. And then John Landis just like punches you in the stomach right at the end um, and just like cuts it off. <laughs> and he's like, you can't be upset about this anymore. Here's a doo-wop version of Blue Moon. So <laughs> that gets me every time. Exactly. And- it's fucking hilarious but I just walked out of this movie and like I got to listen to Rick Baker talk about it afterwards and uh, his whole process doing the special effects and I just I my biggest regret is not going up to him and talking to him and giving him my fucking phone number but (laughs) (laughs) I was just so inspired after I walked out of that film this it was just one of those moments where I was like this is exactly the kind of movie I want to make and like a little bit of jealousy of like god damn like why did he get to make this before me but like oh my god just yeah just one of those films that just really reminded me how much I love horror and love cinema and just want to be able to have my own part in this genre one day. Okay, one day you and I have to make a movie together because <laughs> we're, we're on the same page. We are on the exact same page. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Especially because we both would like to make werewolf movies in the future. Yes. Like, but we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that not on the podcast. We don't want you stealing our ideas. Yeah. Your listener. <laughs> but um I'm 100% on board with you. For me, American Werewolf in London, I think I'm a few years older than you. So I don't know if you'll remember this, but in 2004, Bravo had a uh TV show called the 100 scariest movie moments. Okay. And it was like those older MTV VHS shows are like, I love the seventies. Did you, do you ever, am I ringing any? I was five years old in 2004. um, So I do not, Uh. (laughs) I do not remember this, but it makes me want to go find this show after I get off here. (laughs) You you can find it on YouTube. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a four hour show because they used to have marathons back in the day um they would it was like hour-long episodes shown right after the other mm-hmm. and um it would play basically every halloween for a few years so i got traumatized growing up by that show and two films okay i'm not that old i was like eight or nine when <laughs> when i first saw it so um but um young enough to you know be affected Mm-hmm. And I specifically remember three films on this list that really affected me to this day. Zombie 2, that Italian zombie movie where a zombie bites a shark or something. I haven't seen the movie. I just <laughs> know it from this. I just know it from this show. The original Suspiria, mm-hmm. which yep. I refuse to watch. That's not true. I just, I'm just... It's not that I refuse to watch, it's that I'm too scared to watch it. Yeah, Suspiria, Suspiria is, that's an intense one for sure. So you're And it's so vivid and colorful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I remember distinctly the clip they showed. I got a bunch of friends. You're like, Austin, you'll dig Suspiria. And I'm like, probably, but I'm too scared. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only movie I'm like actively s- still afraid of really 
Like I, I'll watch any other movie and else and you know, it might scare me, but I'll watch it again. Um, <laughs> but that one, that one, I think is truly, I think I just watched it at the right age. Cause I think the exorcist mm-hmm. is the scariest movie of all time, but I would watch that one again. I was <laughs> old enough when I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. I was in high school when I saw that movie for the first time. But Suspiria, I was like at that age where it just ingrained itself. And I think it has a werewolf in it. Suspiria? Or a furry dog hand or something. Oh my god. Maybe. I, I, I don't, don't think know. it has I don't I don't think it has like an actual werewolf werewolf. Um yeah. it might have some weird mods because that movie is kind of like surreal too. That there's there's witches. a bunch of weird shit going on. Yeah, it's there's witches in it. Witches, witches be doing that. Um, I almost said witches be bitches, but I'm like, that's witches, mean. Witches be witching. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> but as you could guess, the third film that really affected me is American Werewolf in London. They showed the transformation scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I had never seen anything like that. Obviously, I was like a nine or an eight year old. But yeah. I remember, I remember it so vividly. And then I remember when I watched the movie for the first time thinking it's going to be this horrifying, like nonstop dread type of film. Mm -hmm. And then it's funny. And it's so funny too. It's like laugh out loud. Yeah. Hilarious. And it is my exact brand of comedy. Like I love 80s comedy. It is my favorite time period for comedy as well funny enough but (laughs) I I'm like a huge Animal House fan um and so I had seen that before I saw American Werewolf and I was really really hoping it was going to have that kind of same humor and it totally did it totally surprised me and just the way that American Werewolf in London is able to balance the humor and the scares is like chef's kiss just incredible immaculate like I don't know how John Landis did it his direction is so good it's just it's it's a hard thing to do to be able to toe that line and be so effective at making your audience laugh and cry and be shaking in their theater seat like it's not an easy thing to do and the way that this film does it is masterful oh yeah and this is the first John Landis film I've ever seen so I was a little disappointed that the Blues Brothers didn't scare me but that's also a great film I think that I think American Werewolf in London is his masterpiece for all the reasons you, you've said, it's it's laugh out loud funny. It's ridiculous at parts, but it never it never feels because the horror is so straight and the horror is so real. It mm. never feels campy. Yeah, because it's not even like it. There's no weird like science experiment gone wrong or like anything like that it's just like he's bit by a werewolf and he has like three days before he turns into one forever and like that's it that's the plot and it's really simple but there's so much done with it and I just oh my god it's just incredible it's just so 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 well done 
there are zombie werewolves who murder a family, yet it doesn't feel campy. Yeah. It's preposterous. Okay. Are you talking about the, the dream sequence with yeah. the, not, the Nazi zombies? Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that, those were wolves. I think, I, okay, so, I yeah, I think they're like wolf zombie Nazi things. I was always confused uh, every time I saw that scene, what the fuck was going on it was funny actually as i was briefing up on this movie again because i've i've seen it many times but (laughs) just for my own uh research i was looking into it more and i was also thinking about because we touched on it a little bit earlier but how werewolves are often you know like the transformation for a werewolf is like an allegory for like you know other transformations like personal transformations or like you know monsters are often allegorical tools for like you know exploring otherness and I was thinking about American Werewolf in London because obviously like there's so many memorable parts of this movie for me, um, like obviously the transformation, even the love story. I remember being like very invested in the friendship between Jack and David. I love their banter. They're, they have great chemistry together on screen. Um, but I was thinking about like, man, this movie is so funny and it's so scary, but like, is there some kind of like deeper meaning to this werewolf, like this lycanthropy that David is experiencing? And so I was actually reading that some critics have kind of like analyzed this film as being an allegory for quote unquote exoticized Jewishness, which I thought was really interesting because um, I... I guess I need to give the movie another rewatch, but I didn't really catch on for, with my first few viewings that David was uh, Jewish. But mm-hmm. I definitely, now that I know that, I can totally see how this film is kind of exploring like his growing awareness of like his otherness, his Jewishness, um, especially being in Europe and just kind of like, I I just thought that was a really interesting take on it. I don't know if that was at all of what John Landis was going for or trying to explore, but I thought it was a really interesting take on the the werewolf as other kind of trope that, you know, monsters are so often used for in horror films. That's really, really interesting. I never had that reading of it. Yeah, and oh, like no. the zombie. I'm gonna have to watch the movie again. Yeah, oh. right. <laughs> but yeah, like the zombie Nazis. Like after reading that, I was like, oh, like he's dealing with like generational trauma, um, and like <laughs> like all of this kind of stuff. I I'm really interested in rewatching it, kind of with that lens, just to see like maybe there are some other things that are kind of being implied in with the film I don't really know but I just thought that was a little fun little tidbit (laughs) no that's that's a really interesting I'll I'll admit I never would have thought of that yeah no me neither but yeah I I was just uh I was very interested in it because I know that so many other werewolf films you know do have that kind of deeper meaning or that allegorical element to it um so it was interesting to see that you know maybe something could be applied to this film as well not nearly as deep. I just wanted to say my favorite part is when he's in the bushes at the zoo and he's trying to get the balloons from this kid. <laughs> yeah. 
and then I forget what he said. He says like I'm the famous balloon thief, and <laughs> and then he like he goes yoink, and he like takes them, and that little boy goes to his mom, and he goes, a naked American man stole my balloon. <laughs> yeah. A what? And David Naughton is just like running through the London <laughs> Zoo with like five balloons over his crotch. And they've like that, that's another um, like interesting thing with this movie is like there are so many scenes that are filmed in like really popular. I mean, I've never been to London, so I don't know, but like mm-hmm. a lot of very famous, you know, locations in London. Um, like Piccadilly Circus. I mean, that is probably my favorite moment in the film is that third act when shit just goes crazy and David turns into a full-blown dog and he's terrorizing Piccadilly Circus and like cars are crashing into each other. There's like, oh my God, like a double-decker bus like crashes or it's just absolute chaos um and I remember even when I was seeing Rick Baker do his Q&A he was talking about Piccadilly Circus and how they filmed there and John Landis like invited 300 members of the London police service to a screening of Blues Brothers and that is how he convinced them to give him a permit to film in Piccadilly Circus. So they had a permit for two days for three hours each from like one to 4 a.m. And they had to get everything shot in Piccadilly Circus in like six hours. The amazing thing about that is you watch that finale and you know it's hectic and it's mayhem, but you know what's going on. Mm -hmm. The direction is clear. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it, it is chaotic. I can't imagine how chaotic it must have been to actually film that. Like my little producer heart is just like <laughs> skipping a beat, thinking about how stressful that would be. But yeah, like just goes to show how talented and put together like John Landis and Rick Baker and their entire team was to be able to like get in there and get the footage that they got, which is some of the most crazy insane monster movie moments like I've ever seen it just really speaks to yeah like how talented and organized they were to be able to accomplish that so good job John Landis (laughs) especially considering that he did a stunt in that scene John Landis oh I got a fact a fun fact for you what's what's the trivia he performs a stunt I think one of the cars, like in the Piccadilly Circus Mayhem, one of the cars like plows into a store and John Landis and a woman gets like pushed into it. And I guess John Landis was like, hey, I want to be a part of this. And instead of getting stunt guy and then the poor producers are like, "Okay, John, don't get hurt. (laughs) And if I remember correctly, he had to do it in one take and then he did. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. He and that's really does it all. <laughs> and that's goals. Like if I get the great pleasure when we, we got to manifest that positive energy, <laughs> when I get to make my fun monster movies, I want to like be a part of the mayhem. Oh, absolutely. You have to be. Because that, that'd just be so much, so much fun. I don't want to spend too much more time on American Werewolf 
because we won't stop. We can't stop, won't stop. Yeah. <laughs> but we do got to talk about how the soundtrack is just amazing. Oh, yeah. I've been listening to it all day today. It's so <laughs> funny. It's, it's, oh my God, just like an extension of John Landis just being a funny guy in like every sense of the word and just wanting to like just <laughs> go super over the top with the soundtrack so every single song in the movie has moon in the title and honestly when I was watching it like I didn't even pick up on that because the songs are just like really good songs he wasn't like you know just picking them out of a hat because they had moon in the title like they actually do fit within the, the film really well and there's but, like yeah. four different versions of blue moon yeah <laughs> but he uses he uses the best one the sam cook version mm -hmm. during the uh during the transformation right yeah that's when the sam yeah. cook one is that is just because that's that um juxtaposition you love to see in film Mm -hmm. horrific imagery beautiful song love to see it <laughs> yeah absolutely and like I know that they originally had a score written for that moment as well and they ended up not using it and going with the the blue moon uh Sam Cooke version over it instead which I yeah I just I can't imagine it like being any other way now because yeah I think it just adds this like because he's just He's just like chilling at his house, like reading or at his girlfriend's apartment, I should say. But he's just like hanging out, reading a book. <laughs> like, right. He's just relaxing his girlfriend's, you know, working at the hospital and he's just listening to music and reading a yeah. book. And then he just like <laughs> starts collapsing on the and ground. And he's screaming. And howling just... in pain. Yeah. Ayo, there we go. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 such a great moment with the music over top and uh, just provides this amazing contrast. And that sequence is really long, too. Like it really is like a minute by minute. Like it's so visceral and like you can only imagine like what the physical pain is that he's going through. Like it's really, really gruesome. And even just like him screaming during it is just like, oh man, like that must hurt so fucking bad. I, <laughs> Props to Rick Baker. <laughs> but I yeah, we love it. We really, we really could talk about this movie forever, <laughs> I swear. We're gonna move on to the 90s, but shout out to the greatest music video ever made, Michael Jackson's thriller. Yeah, we would never have thriller if it wasn't for American <laughs> Werewolf in London. So once again, thanks John Landis and Rick Baker. Like they not only made one of my favorite horror films, but one of my, if not my all time favorite music video. So hell yeah. Now we are in the 90s. Yes. So this is another period where I kind of uh, personally stayed away from <laughs> as far as like <laughs> werewolf movies because I think CGI is really gross <laughs> in like most circumstances, but I would say especially for werewolf movies, I am just like very, very anti-CGI. I have not seen... So in the 90s and early 2000s, we have Wolf, 
which is I believe the movie with Jack Nicholson right that one's not bad yeah so I I have not seen that but I know that one kind of is more like a drama yeah um it's got like Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer hell yeah um, kind of like a modern reimagining of the wolfman and then we have like Bad Moon we have American Werewolf in Paris which I have not seen but I've seen some clips of just kind of what the transformations look like and I I could have been scared as it I, I could have been scared by it as a kid but I think now like probably doesn't really affect me in the way that I think they want it to. Yeah, it's not a great follow up. <laughs> but I I think you should check out Bad Moon. Bad Moon's yes. pretty fun. That's been on my list actually. That is the one from that uh genre or from that like time period that actually looked really cool. It's got the very classic like big werewolf that just looks like a wolf on two legs essentially. <laughs> it's a it's a great design. It looks really cool. Like from the photos, I'm really, I'm really into this. Bad Moon to me feels like an 80s movie. It looks like an 80s movie, even just from the color palette that they use in the the film poster and like the, everything is shot at night and it's got that kind of like day to night, like blue lighting a little bit. Um, Yeah, it looks super, super 80s. It was just made a couple years too late. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to the more digital werewolves, we have Underworld, which I'll give Underworld a little bit of a pass because it's not about the werewolves, really. It's about Underworld vampires, right? Like it's both, but we're on, but you follow everything from Kate Beckinsale's point of view and she's a vampire. So So the werewolves are like the bad guys. Kind of. There is a vampire werewolf war. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which is cool. There's a lot of really fun lore that they make for it. Mm -hmm. So Underworld is doing so many other things. And I don't think the CGI in Underworld is bad. And because the werewolves aren't like the main focus, I'm more Mm -hmm. lenient towards it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think it's more, it's not even that the CGI looks bad. It's more just like, I'm not a huge fan of like that specific kind of design for Werewolves, I would say. I think it works for Underworld because it fits the rest of the kind of- The world that they're building. Kind of like the Matrix-y world they want. Yeah. Lots of leather. Van Helsing, I have a soft spot for. I grew up with that, loving that movie. Also has Kate Beckinsale. This is another one that I've never seen. Those werewolves are weird. The werewolves in that one are like the Incredible Hulk. What? I have to look up photos of that. They're they're like giant and jacked. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, God, I don't know how I feel about these kinds of werewolves. Like they, (laughs) this is kind of how they looked in um, American Werewolf in Paris too. And they're like, they're like wolves on two legs that are just like, roided up <laughs> and like <laughs> I'm not into it <laughs> I don't like there's they're scary they're scary they just it, that's I don't know like that's not a werewolf to me I think this is where we get into that controversy again of like what is a werewolf and what is like a just like a big dog <laughs> <laughs> 
We have The Wolfman in 2010, directed by Joe Johnston, who also did Captain America, The First Avenger, and Jurassic Park 3. Ooh. I like Jurassic Park. But um, The Wolfman was fine. I didn't That's hate just it. A, is it just a reboot of the original Wolfman, right? Yeah. There, mm-hmm. is some, there is some gnarly practical effects in it. There is some CG that's not great and some CG that's really good. Okay. Joe Johnston got his start doing special effects and doing concept art for Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. So I think that's why Joe Johnston does a lot of special effects driven films. But The Wolfman has some really cool practical effects in it. It just, I think it tries to do too much story-wise. Okay. It like tries to, it has like too many plot lines and it's like, chill. I'm here for the wolf. I was going to say, I'm just here for the wolves, man. At at some point, like there's got to be a line. (laughs) Right. There's some gnarly gore. So it's definitely like worth a, a watch on that regard and I think it's a fun film but I do think it tries to do too much it's not definitely not the worst werewolf movie we're talking about yeah well we can get into cursed too um which is another movie that came out around this time and have you seen cursed also I actually watched it for the first time like two weeks ago Okay, so (laughs) this is another one of those movies where it just like punches me in the gut to just learn. Just the more that I learn about it, the more I'm just like so frustrated and angry (laughs) because this was one of those movies that I just, it had everything, like it had all the right ingredients. That's what is so upsetting. Like it had, we have Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson the writing team behind Scream working on this film. They had Rick Baker on board to do practical special effects for it. They had this crazy, crazy all-star cast that they were going to bring on. Skeet Ulrich was at one point attached to it. Uh, I know Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street was supposed to be in it at one point. It was supposed to be this big ensemble cast. And uh, I love the fact that you mentioned the two Wes Craven alumni. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but like he was bringing all of his friends back for this movie. Right. Like everyone was going to come back. Um, we have Christina Ritchie and Jesse Eisenberg um, who end up being <laughs> in the final film, but so many other people that, you know, never, even people that filmed scenes for this movie, like Skeet Ulrich, like there's a photo online of him being literally like mauled by a practical werewolf for this film that never saw the light of day. And it absolutely pisses me off. It's so upsetting. <laughs> I feel like it's a personal attack on me. <laughs> the fact that that never made made it into the final cut of the film. But yeah, this film basically went through like just production hell essentially. And it had so many reshoots, like four different sets of reshoots. The film was just, production was constantly being halted. Um, They had a $38 million budget allegedly, but it's probably way more than that um, because of all the reshoots and it was just that classic story of just the studio getting way too involved and trying to have their hand in every aspect of the film and they just butchered it basically and Wes Craven 
came out many years later saying that he was like ashamed of how the film came out and it's just really really sad um because it had so much potential had so many incredible people behind it um judy greer's in it too um yeah. and if you look up like photos of the creature design that they that rick baker had made for her character specifically and then uh the photo <laughs> that I put in this little werewolf Bible that I made of what she actually looks like in the film. And it's just, <laughs> it's hilariously bad. <laughs> I just feel so bad for Wes Craven on this because it's just like, mm-hmm. the stu- like you don't trust him at this point. No, like, exactly. I'm like, has he not been making horror films for literally three decades by now? Like, Has he not made like three films that redefined the horror genre? Like, yeah, every Last decade. House on the Left, uh, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream. Like each of those films changed the genre. <laughs> exactly. And it really hurts because I feel like Curse could have been that but for werewolf films if it had just been made the way that I believe he had intended it to be made and uh, especially like once again another female werewolf there's two female werewolves in this film and like they are not done well (laughs) at all and it's just such a missed opportunity and so frustrating as a viewer I'm sure it was incredibly frustrating for Wes Craven and I'm sure he was just like kicking himself every day for like the entire many years that this took for this process to be over making this movie and, and it's just, not like, even his fault with regret. no exactly like it was not it had nothing to do with him it was all uh the fucking Weinstein company and the studio yeah. involved and yeah, just not trusting him and his vision, which just, once again, why? I think they would have learned their lesson from Scream 3. Yeah. <laughs> like, they did the same thing, the same shit on Scream 3. And it's just like, I hate that for everyone listening. This is like, this podcast is a pro Wes Craven podcast. <laughs> we stand a king. Rest in peace. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, anyone that isn't a fan of Wes Craven, like, personally dm me and we can have a discussion about that because i don't know what's wrong with you <laughs> but yeah 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 dm dm us we'll meet you at uh denny's at 3 a.m and we'll uh hash <laughs> things out yeah <laughs> we'll have a little <laughs> chat <laughs> with baseball bats and um we'll we'll do it under the full moon let's go <laughs> yeah <laughs> But besides Cursed, um, there were some other standouts during this time period as far as the werewolf genre goes. And I don't know, have you seen Dog Soldiers? Also? Oh, hell fucking yes, I've seen Dog Soldiers. Okay, I have not seen Dog Soldiers, so I'll let you take that away. I want to hear about it. Watch Dog Soldiers. Like, I... <laughs> Um, I kind of say that as a joke, but honestly, Dog Soldiers is one of those movies. It's it's called Dog Soldiers. If you're not sold by that, there's nothing I can say other other than it's it's Dog Soldiers. If you really need some convincing to watch this epic film, I believe it's the directorial debut of the guy who did The Descent. 
No way. Okay. I've yeah. seen the descent. I did not know that. I'm blanking on his name right now, but um, Neil Marshall, I think is, is his name, but okay. um, he did the descent dog soldiers was his first film. It's not really like other werewolf movies I've seen. The closest film I can think of is it's very much like predator. Okay. <laughs> like the dog soldiers are the, the predators. <laughs> No, there's um norm they're normal sol- soldiers. So the dog soldiers are the good guys in this movie. No. <laughs> I it's been a it's been a little bit since I've seen it, but it's like it's like a bunch of soldiers and they have to fight a werewolf. So are the soldiers werewolves? I'm confused. You gotta watch the movie. Okay, I guess I do. I need um, I need this mystery to be I forget. I forget why it's called Dog Soldiers. I just think it's, I just think the people making it was like, well, what are we going to call it? I don't know. Dog Soldiers? Good enough for me. It was the, yeah, the draft name that never got changed. (laughs) Um, I will say though, yeah, just by looking at the photos of the wolves, um, they definitely have a really unique creature design. They're once again, going back to the like bipedal, big beefy muscular kind of dog but they look really scary (laughs) and they they remind very they look very real in their environment too they remind me of a more intense version of the howling werewolf Mm -hmm. yeah that's it seems like that's kind of what they were getting their main inspiration from but yeah, Dog Soldiers is a fun movie. But watch it with subtitles because it's very like Scottish. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that it was uh it took place in Scot Scotland. I watch uh, everything with subtitles anyways, but especially when it's like these heavier uh, European accents, you definitely want subtitles. Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. <laughs> so um, I'll let you start the next one because I know you've been uh You've been clawing to talk about this one. Yes, yes. So the next movie um, that I wanted to touch on from the 2000s is Ginger Snaps, which I would hope that anyone who's interested in werewolf films has seen this before. Um, This is one of those movies where very similarly to American Werewolf in London, I just kind of finished it and I was like, It's one of those movies that just makes sense. Like it just clicks and it's so obvious of a a metaphor like exploring puberty and young womanhood through the werewolf archetype seems so clear that it's like insane to me that it had not been done before this point. I was really taken aback by that. And it's easily the the best, most endearing female werewolf that I've ever seen on screen. And uh, it's just incredible. So let's let's get into it for a second. So Ginger Snaps uh, came out in 2000. Uh, It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. And it was only made on like a $4.5 million budget, which is really not that much money, especially considering how much, how many practical effects are in this film and how well done they are. 
it's very very impressive and it's a canadian film too right yes yeah it was made in canada i feel like you can kind of tell when you watch it it's just like <laughs> it's got more of like a grittiness to it than i feel like uh some of the other like american horror films had from the same time period but yes it's from canada it's uh, about two sisters uh bridget fitzgerald who is played by emily perkins and ginger fitzgerald who's played by Catherine isabel and is arguably like my favorite female character in any horror film she's just fucking so cool <laughs> like exactly who I wanted to be when I was in high school like if I had seen this movie in high school I like I would have just become her I think I think I would have just <laughs> made that my entire personality because she just has this just like doesn't give a fuck kind of attitude that I think every 16 year old girl like wishes they could have <laughs> and uh their sisterhood between Bridget and Ginger is also very sweet and very endearing and I really it, it kind of uh we were talking a little bit about the familial relationships that are often explored in werewolf films and I really loved seeing um sisterhood get explored in this film as well so yeah they're the sisters and they live in this suburban town uh, called Bailey Downs, where there is this, the beast of Bailey Downs, and it's basically starting to ravage all of the dogs in the neighborhood, and eventually, whatever this beast is, uh, bites our main character, Ginger, um, when she is on her period one night, and chaos pretty much ensues from there on outwards. <laughs> To bring it back to your point on the familiar, the familial bonds, I think that's where the heart of the film lies is in the relationship between the sisters. Mm -hmm. And it's been, a, I think, a year or maybe two since I've last seen Ginger Snaps. It's not a film you forget easily. Like, mm -hmm. it's a truly fantastic film. But Bridget is kind of the main character. It feels yeah. like. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It definitely feels like you get more of like her inner monologue a little bit more. Like the lens is a little bit more Bridget's than Ginger's, even though Ginger is the one who is like actively going through this lycanthropic uh, metamorphosis. Right. And like the metaphors are clear for her and and like becoming a woman in puberty, but it's also there for Bridget, too, because Ginger's a more uh, assertive. I hesitate to say aggressive one. She becomes aggressive once she <laughs> gets bit. But mm -hmm. Bridget is also she needs to transform as well. So both of the sisters are transforming because Bridget is kind of like a doormat in the beginning of the film yeah and then at the end she is her own woman yeah absolutely Bridget kind of has to learn to stand up for herself and stand on her own and not rely on Ginger as much and uh, Ginger is kind of going through her own you know changes internally externally and is uh all the yeah. ternalies <laughs> they definitely are having this um I mean I don't have a sister but I can imagine like very much the classic teenage 
sister relationship especially like they're notably like less than a year apart or something like that in the film so they're really close in age and it's exploring all of these typical coming of age themes like growing up and seeing your older sister move on and you know become popular and become sexually active and just be cooler than you and Bridget's just kind of like grappling (laughs) with all of that it's so good because it's just ah you said it so well. And then I don't even know where to like, because there's so many points I can make. You know what I mean? I know. <laughs> this film is really like ripe with metaphor. Um, like that's what I love about it so much. Um, I've never seen a film that so blatantly like explored these, these issues of like young womanhood and just like the rage of being a girl and dealing with your entire like everything is changing for you like your body is changing um you know like your social life is changing uh there's just there's so many things that you are dealing with as a young woman that is scary and it's also really hard to talk about with other people and uh it can be very isolating and i love the way that this film takes those struggles and uses the werewolf trope to explore them and really call out a lot of a lot just a lot of like what is happening to Ginger like she is going through puberty obviously Um, that's what kind of that's like the inciting incident for the entire movie essentially is like she gets her period and she is starting to go through this transition of becoming a woman but she's also becoming a fucking monster and no one wants to acknowledge that what she's going through is not just like the normal (laughs) like getting your period and you know, your armpit hair is growing or whatever. Like she's, she's like, no, I need help. Like this is not what should be happening to me. And it just feels like everyone throughout the movie is just like, no, like, you know, like she, uh, she gets pulled into the nurse's office in the movie at one point. And the nurse is like, you know, like this is just a normal part of being a woman. And it's like, okay, a, just because it's part of being a woman like doesn't mean it's okay and doesn't mean I can't complain about it endlessly because this sucks but also this is way more than me just like going through puberty this is like I'm changing into an animal so (laughs) but it just like yeah (laughs) it's like making a statement on just like how you know like female issues are like being ignored or downplayed so much Um, which I thought was a really interesting element to this movie. Yeah, as a man, I couldn't relate to all of it, but I think the film does a great job of portraying all this because I can empathize with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I could see what Ginger was struggling with, and I can see that she, like... Because at one point, she's growing a tail, and she's like... (laughs) she starts growing a tail. (laughs) She's got, like claws coming out of her ankles um she like her hair is turning gray like there's all of this weird stuff happening to her also we have to talk about like her not only like her physical transformation but she also 
becomes this very sexually empowered woman throughout the course of the film. And I also love how this movie really flips, like, because for me, I am so used to seeing werewolf films that are, you know, men who are already, like, men. <laughs> they're, they're animalistic just in that sense. Um, but seeing them kind of, like, usually the werewolf is just, like, even more of an exploration of those, like, primal, like, male animalistic instincts so seeing that come from a female character was so cool for me and uh like specifically uh one of my favorite parts in the film is when she so ginger has this boy who has kind of been like gawking at her um has kind of been like i don't even want to say pining after but just like like watching her from the bleacher is like commenting on her rack and just like kind of has her eyes, has his eyes on her, like, yes, this is someone I want to like go after. And so when Ginger is bitten and she starts to have all these changes and she starts to like experience lust, um, she goes after this guy and she doesn't want to be like a blow up doll for him, which is kind of like what he's expecting her to be like. They are hooking up in a car and he's like, just lay down, like, just relax, like, let me do this. And she's like, no, you lay back. Like, she becomes aggressive. She's domineering. She, like, knows exactly what she wants, how she wants it. And that is so fucking cool to see, like, a teenage girl act like that in a movie. Like, I had never seen that before except maybe like Jennifer's body is like the only other thing I could like really compare that to and it's just it's it's just it makes me happy to see it like I don't see young girls have so much power over their own sexuality like I do in this movie with Ginger I think there's a there is a through line from Ginger Snaps to Jennifer's body Mm because they're quite a I think they're almost 10 years apart if not 10 years apart they're pretty close to it yeah ginger snaps was 2000 and i think jennifer's body was 2009 yeah yeah and they very much like they have such a similar tone like they're very witty they're very quippy um their screen like the dialogue and the screenplays very much like feel in the same vein and they they make a really great pair and I think Ginger Snaps has one of the most unique werewolf designs. Yes. And I love the werewolf design in this film. It it might even be, I honestly, I think I even like it more than American Werewolf in London. I feel <sighs> like if I could, I know, a subversive, right? So I feel Hot like take. my <laughs> my dream werewolf, aka what I would do if I had. 10 plus million dollars to make my movie would be a mixture of ginger snaps because what I love about ginger snaps is how slow it is so you really get to see like all of the different pieces of her changing like it's a very slow process so like her claws Mm -hmm. get longer throughout the film um she you know like you said she has a little tail at one point she starts to grow like these big dew claws on her ankles and then 
by the end of it, she has like prosthetics and they do this really cool makeup on her eyes to make it look like she's got like cat eyes almost. And her hair is starting to turn silver. And then by the end, she turns into like a full blown, like actual, like quadrupedal werewolf, which I'm a quadrupedal werewolf fan. I think that is how I like to see if they're going to go full dog with the werewolf, like I want them to be on all fours. Um, but like that transformation for Ginger up to the point where she turns into a full blown animal and then replace that end wolf that she becomes with what uh, Jack or with, with what David turns into in American Werewolf in London. That's my dream werewolf right there. <laughs> I, I'm digging that. <laughs> I am digging that. So I'm looking at the time and we are getting close to the end. <laughs> so for everyone listening, we have a whole subject, but I, I don't think we're going to be able to get to the modern age of werewolves. We can like touch uh, on it a little bit. See uh, werewolves within. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yes. I, there are yeah. more wolf movies out there that I haven't seen. I know Wolf of Snow Hollow is a lot of people say that one's really good. I haven't gotten to it yet. Yes, I have not seen that either. Um, I'm excited for Cursed, which I think came out. It must have been either very late last year or it might have even been early this year. Um, but I'm excited for that. I definitely feel like we are on the precipice of a werewolf revival. Um, I don't know how many people would agree with me in this, but I just think that there is so much more to be explored with this monster. And specifically, just like we touched on so many times in this podcast, um, this transformative element of the werewolf and lycanthropy um, just provides so much opportunity and is such fertile ground for metaphor and for exploring otherness, for exploring queerness, femininity, toxic masculinity, all of these different things. Um, there's so much more that has not been explored in this genre. And so I am very excited to see what happens with werewolves in the next like five to ten years because uh, I feel like they're just they're making a comeback and it's it's really it's making me very happy to see it and I'm going to manifest or better I'm going to wolf manifest this uh prophecy right now we're both going to be a part of it too yes we're taking it over I'm ready you're hearing it here <laughs> First, folks, uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to have our wolf movies up in the Pantheon as well. Hopefully closer to American Werewolf than uh, American, American Werewolf in London than it is American Werewolf in Paris. But we'll see. <laughs> and maybe you listening right now, maybe you're going to make a werewolf movie. You're going to be part of the werewolf assance, wolf asana, where. We're sonnet. We're in a You heard it. You heard it here first. I heard it here first. Cause that word has not invent has been has not been a thing until now. We did it. <laughs> we're making werewolf movies and inventing words. So just like all innovators do. <laughs> Thank you. One last werewolf question. 
Let's take the wolf you just invented like two minutes ago. The Ginger Snaps American Werewolf Hybrid. And the title of the podcast is Would You Die? So if you were walking down maybe an alley or like just walking home or something, you see this wolf, what are your chances of survival? Not good. (laughs) I'm going to be real. Um, I don't think I stand a fucking chance. Um, Especially if it's like David Naughton chasing me down the street with like full wolfie level, um, like on all fours. Um, Razor sharp claws, razor sharp teeth. Yeah, I think I'm definitely getting mauled to death. And uh, I think I would probably come out of that looking like jack does (laughs) with like a massive claw gash down my entire body but i would love it i would eat it up if i could die anyway it would definitely be my number one choice and how i I am (laughs) i i i agree if i any kind of wolf it could be the uh the wolf man it could be teen wolf like i don't think teen wolf Wolf, uh, i feel like i could i could do some damage to him (laughs) maybe you can but he would destroy me one-on-one pick up a basketball game and that's the same thing as dying i can take michael j fox come on i think i can handle it i'll just throw a basketball at his head or push him off the top of the car while they're air guitaring down the street and (laughs) you know i think i can handle it (laughs) well you you got a better chance than me (laughs) i have the confidence you know like i think that's what it's all about and i may have a gun with a silver bullet just in case well that's that's the uh, that's the thing when when it comes to werewolves i'm just like look it's gonna happen i i had a good run (laughs) yeah Uh, you just have to give in to your fate (laughs) right like other monsters people might pick maybe werewolves no i i'm just gonna give up right there cardio (laughs) is not my strength it always surprises not surprises but i love when people pick the xenomorph because it's like that's the easiest one there's no way no one's gonna survive that i'm not gonna (laughs) i'm not going to uh interview Sigourney Weaver anytime soon she's the only one yeah yeah the only one it doesn't matter how creative (laughs) cunning you are like you're gonna get your stomach ripped through so (laughs) but a werewolf eh, a little bit of a better chance but me personally I don't have silver I don't have wolf spain and cardio is not my friend so I think you definitely have to take into account what decade the the werewolf is from (laughs) And there's if we've if we've learned anything from this discussion, it's that werewolves come in all shapes and sizes and athletic abilities and uh, like Teen Wolf. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. So you just got to be smart about which ones you are surrounding yourself with. Exactly. So uh, this has been such a fun werewolf conversation uh do you want to talk about what's next for you yes so huh funny funny enough um i'm making a werewolf movie as we speak right now um it's called night shift it's a coming of age horror short about a teen waitress named cheryl bennett who harnesses the power to bite back against misogyny in her conservative 1980s town Uh, It's going to be a neon-soaked amalgamation of 
modern feminist horror, 80s werewolf flicks, and coming-of-age teen comedies like Amy Heckerling and John Hughes' work. I think Ginger Snaps meets Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And our crowdfunding campaign is actually live right now. It's going to be live through May 21st. Um, so if any of what I just said sounded exciting, interesting, scary, you can check out our Seed and Spark at seedandspark.com slash fund slash night dash shift dash pdx. Or you can just go follow us on Instagram at night.shift.pdx. And you can keep up to date on all of the uh, bloody fun that's going on with that. And I'm really excited and I'm really looking forward to making the femme werewolf of my dreams that I just described not moments ago. (laughs) (laughs) I love all of that. I'm already a fan and I can't wait to see the, I, I can't wait to follow the journey and then see the finished product. Thank you. Yes, I'm really looking forward to sharing with everyone. We have a proof of concept that'll be coming out uh, just a little bit before the campaign. So keep your eyes peeled. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to submit my own little body of work into the vast uh, array of werewolf films that already exist. You're about to join the pack. I am. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Austin. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to Carly Boone for this epic and comprehensive werewolf conversation. Once again, she's already adding herself to the pantheon of werewolf filmography with her upcoming short film, Night Shift. Please consider supporting it at seedandspark.com slash fun slash night dash shift dash pdx there you can also follow it for updates pictures and more i'll put a link in the description below if you like what you heard please rate share and subscribe it'll help this podcast grow and for those of you listening now you can brag to your friends on how you were a fan from the very beginning you can find the show's social media on twitter facebook and instagram at would you die show feel free to talk to me on there let me know what you think of the show and give me any suggestions on what you might want to hear You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend, Josie Palmer. Next week's episode, we're switching things up and going to a galaxy far, far away. That's right, we're celebrating May 4th by analyzing the connections between the horror genre and the Star Wars universe. Tune in next week when we talk about that not-so-spooky saga and much, much more. Until then, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die. <laughs>